Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 13th, 2017, and my guest is Robert Waples, professor of economics at Wake Forest University and the co-editor of the Independent Review. Our topic for today is a recent article of his, The Economics of Pope Francis. Robert, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me. Your article was the introduction to a set of articles in the Independent Review, an online symposium that will be published as a book on the Pope's encyclical of 2015, Laudato Si', which is Latin, I think, for praise be to you and the you being God. And that uh, encyclical was dealing with environmental issues generally, but also dealt with a wide range of issues related to economics, capitalism, rich, poor, inequality, money, and so on. So I want to start with, uh, for those of us who are not so familiar with uh, papal uh, habits, why did the Pope, do you think, write such a message and what was the Pope's goal in trying in, in, in publishing it? And so it follows in the footsteps of a lot of other papal encyclicals, especially in what are called social encyclicals that date back to 1891 when Pope Leo XIII had this encyclical called Rerum Novarum, which was on kind of the labor questions and labor and capitalism questions of the day. But it really follows in that tradition. And I think his main purpose for publishing it was that he thinks that there's just something fundamentally going wrong with humanity. And not just with how we interact with the environment, but how we interact with each other. So it's kind of billed by most readers as an environmental encyclical. But in fact, it goes a lot deeper than that. Uh, It's as much about the environment as it is about those broader social questions, especially rich and poor and those kind of questions. And an encyclical is, is just a public statement, right? It's, that's the or open that, letter. I, How it, would you describe basically, it? Basically, I would describe it as his attempt to, well, as he puts it, dialogue. He uses the word dialogue in the encyclical like 25 times. But really to get out his, you know, the, the Pope, the church's point of view on something, as a teaching document to the faithful, but also as a document, you know, for everyone else, hopefully, to learn from. So why did why did you respond to it? You know, what argument would be the Pope's views in economics mm-hmm. that might be important for Catholics, maybe not, mm-hmm. depending on its influence and depending on its persuasiveness. But why did you, as an economist, uh, feel it was important to respond to it? And, and so I will let you know that I kind of approached the thing with great trepidation. And that is the idea was proposed by some people at the Independent Institute. And I, I tried to kind of push them off of for a little yeah. while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they were persistent. And they made a very good point, right, that uh, the Pope has asked for dialogue, and he has asked for dialogue specifically with economists. And so I think there's a lot of economists who have read the, the document and think that it could be a fruitful dia- dialogue, right, that... Maybe we can learn as much from reading him 
but he can learn a lot from discussing these things with us as well. And so that's really why I was finally talked into it, that maybe there could be a fruitful exchange. Uh, and I know I personally, I think I got a lot out of reading it and working with the other economists to, to put together this symposium and then ultimately the book, uh, Pope Francis and the Caring Society. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's a very busy man, of course. And he's got a billion Catholics or something to, to tend in his flock. So the odds that it actually reaches his ear are pretty low, but might as well try. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is there any, um, you haven't gotten an invite yet? No, no. <laughs> but you could, um, or somebody could. I, you know, I found. Uh-huh. Well, that's true. You know, he has had a number of scientific advisory panels over the years, including one of economists. And I don't know who currently is on it, but I know that, for example, uh, Gary Becker and, you know, other leading economists like that. Uh, we're on previous incarnations of these panels. And so I think that uh, modern popes, popes take it pretty seriously that they've got a lot to learn from professional scholars. And it just takes a lot to filter through them because, of course, they're working with com- committees of, of churchmen and stuff on these things as well. So after reading your article, I went and read the um, the Pope's um, mm-hmm. piece, and it's uh, it's quite long, and we'll put a link up to it. Uh, you know, it's a public document, and your essay, which introduces the other essays in the symposium, is also available online. And will the other essays will be in a few months? Um, but you give a nice overview of both uh, the Pope's views and how some of the people uh, responded in in the in the essays that that the Independent Review published. So let's start with the environment, and I, I agree with you. I, I had heard of this encyclical as an environmental uh, piece, but it's that's really only a, a small piece of it. It's it's really that it's environmental in the sense that we are all here at home on the earth, and how do we treat each other and the earth are really the focus of the of the encyclical. Uh, but let's start with the environment in particular. What is the Pope's uh, argument and view on the environment and the environment now we've treated the, the earth? Yeah, I think he sees a real possibility of doomsday, and that's a word he uses, uh, scenarios. And, you know, that is that we've just been uh, consuming and producing on this unsustainable path, and it could easily precipitate a catastrophe. That's his point of view. And so other people have made that argument, uh, obviously, uh, but what I think he adds to it is a kind of a, a new emphasis and a new moral direction. And that is, if you think about it, um, arguments about why you know we should treat the environment better are like, we need to treat the environment better because it's the only environment we have and generations to come are going to have to live with the decisions we make. Um, and that only goes so far. And I think the Pope wants to add to that, all that, yes, but also... The way we're treating the environment and the way we're treating each other is harming our souls. You know, it's, it's bad for us in, in moral ways. <clears throat> and ultimately, the problem he sees is that we are just consuming too much and producing too much so that we can consume too much. We are addicted to excessive, wasteful consumption. We, especially the, the people in the rich parts of the world, are just consuming too much, and of course, the the church has been arguing similar things going all the way back to day one. 
uh, but kind of a combination of those old arguments about us just consuming too much, added with an environmental set of arguments, put them together, and maybe finally people will get the message. And so ultimately, what does he mean by us consuming too much? It goes back to basically, you know, the biblical uh, passage about you can't serve God and mammon. We have gotten so wrapped up in mammon and wanting to get richer and richer and consume more and have all this new stuff that it is pulling us away from God. That mammon, is mammon being the material point. side exactly of life. right money. Exactly right. Yep. So, so I found I found this. Um, you know, I, putting my cards on the table, I have two challenges reading the Pope's document. One is I'm Jewish, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I'm very respectful of of religion and organized religion. Uh, probably more than the average uh, academic type. Uh, but I also am a free marketer also. And uh, mm-hmm. so I have two sort of strikes against me reading this document. Yeah. It's it's strikingly um, reminiscent of of the 1960s for me. Uh, it's kind of like Paul Ehrlich, population bomb, except – it's not populations that's the bomb. Right. right? It's, it's, it's stuff. just we're over-consuming, and that is bad for us. Uh, and the Pope's happy for us to have more population, so that's not the part of the bomb. But, yeah, I, I did. I, in fact, I was just rereading parts of it this morning, and, yep, yeah, it kind of brought back the whole set of feelings of kind of 60s and 70s kind of just doom-ism that you well, saw then. The Limits to Growth, which was yep. an important book yep. um in the i think early i think it came out in i want to say 72 which forecast mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. shortages and dis, and and ecological destruction mm-hmm. uh, that I, I want but i want to say two things about um the pope's take on it that are not 1960ish so i want to give give him his due and not just take a cheap shot at him um because i'm not that doesn't um not helpful so the first is that he's um, he channels his namesake Saint Francis of Assisi and argues that our attitudes affect our behavior, particularly toward the Earth. Uh, is the way I read it that mm-hmm. that by uh, if we can see ourselves in a different relationship with the Earth, uh, we would then behave better. We would be mm-hmm. less wasteful. We mm-hmm. would pollute mm-hmm. less. And I find that interesting because I'm very interested in general in the idea of self-transformation being motivated by uh, emotion and attitude, not just um, external incentives. And then, you know, the second part is that he sees the earth as a sentient thing, which I found mm-hmm. kind of shocking. Uh, we talk about this occasionally on, on Econ Talk. Uh, but he calls the earth our sister and mm-hmm. th- that she is crying out in pain mm-hmm. at the way we, we're treating her. And I found that um, – I was surprised by that. So comment on yeah, both that, of those points if you can. That is that is very um, Franciscan, you know, his namesake, Francis of Assisi, to see the earth in those light and refer to it as, you know, you know brother, sister earth and – uh, likewise, other uh, created things kind of being re- referred to as brother and sister. And so that's a direction that you will see some in the church go. It's not really what I would say the main thrust of, of where the church goes, because I think they've rightly worried over the millennia that 
that's kind of moves you toward paganism if you push it yeah, too far, that's, right? That's what struck and me. So, yeah, exactly right. And so I don't think you would see that in a lot of the earlier encyclicals, and I've read some of the some of his predecessors, and you you wouldn't see that there. But um, it's not as radically as radical of a break from predecessors when it comes to the more economic arguments. I think where there's been um, a ongoing critique of the you know the teaching office of the church about free markets, you know, and, and free market capitalism. And I, like you, consider myself generally to be a free market kind of person. That's my uh, default assumption, unless there's a good reason to think otherwise. Um, but it's not his default assumption. It's kind of like the case must be made. He's more of a precautionary principle kind of guy. In fact, he even uses that term in the encyclical. Um, and so all those worries that a lot of us have about the precautionary principle, uh, you know, got to get right out there. Uh, but basically, he's, I think, in the mainstream of church teaching from over the years to have a, a we'll say, respect for the market, but also a wariness of the market and that it just letting us all go together free for all is not going to work out as well as the standard economist says. So what, what fascinated me about that, what it forces me to think about an issue that sort of lurks in the background of economics as a teaching, and which is that the market really doesn't have any feelings. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a thing that emerges from our interactions. Prices mm -hmm. emerge, and you know, overlaying or underlying it because it's both market activity is our cultural attitudes toward that mm -hmm. enterprise, mm -hmm. and. I have the tendency to romanticize that uh, because I'm sympathetic to the outcome. I, I like, in general, the way it turns out. So I think I'm prone to say things like markets encourage you to be um, empathetic. We recently mm -hmm. had uh, Paul Bloom on the program, and we talked about empathy. And one of the thoughts I had after that interview ended, which was pretty anti-empathy, is that you know, we didn't talk about one of the uses of empathy, which is it encourages you to put your shoes yourself in the shoes of your customer, for example. Capitalism does and make you uh, be more successful in pleasing that customer if you can imagine what their needs and desires are. Mm -hmm, so I, mm -hmm. I like that human side of, of the market. I like the way it enhances our opportunity to be creative. I love innovation for that reason I see that as a form of human flourishing much more than a way to make us rich. And so I tend to romanticize it. The Pope and others tend to de-romanticize it. They call mm -hmm. it sterile. They call it mm -hmm. uh, motivated by money. They call mm -hmm. it cruel. They call it heartless. And I just wonder how much of, coming back to this question about attitudes and behavior, I wonder how much of our behavior as market participants depends on the way we see ourselves day-to-day in, -day in that fray, in that competitive and cooperative aspects of the competitive and cooperative aspects of market activity. Yeah. I think that one's kind of big picture, you know, how, how do you feel about the market, uh, has a lot to do with your upbringing, your background. And so there's one article in our symposium that makes the case that so much of Francis's Take on the market. It's the Pope now. Yeah, not the Pope exactly. Uh, Jorge Bergoglio's point of view uh, is that he's from Argentina, 
And so he calls himself, uh, he, he once said that he has a great allergy for economic things that he learned from his father, an overworked accountant. Uh, but, you know, he grew up in Argentina and, you know, lived there until very, very recently. And if, if anything, Argentina is kind of the poster child for markets gone wrong. You know, markets yeah. not ever living up to their potential. And so a free market economist uh, would say, well, that's because it's not a true market. It's because that's not capitalism, that's crony capitalism. And a number of the people in our symposium you know, make that point. He's kind of looking at the, the worst case scenario where the, the winners and losers aren't determined by, you know, consumer sovereignty. They're determined by your political connections and all that kind of stuff. Compare that to uh, one of his earlier predecessors, John Paul II, who grew up, well, didn't grow up, but lived much of his adult life under communism. And so he was coming from like a way different point of view and was so much more able to clearly see all the benefits that we see in markets. And he had some of the most, you might say, pro-market things to say of, of any of the recent posts just because of his starting point in comparing it to communism and knowing how much it allowed to people to do and, and how vital it was to the very word that you used earlier, the flourishing of people. Yeah, I want to come back to that, but I, I think it's a fascinating point about upbringing and perspective. Um, and I'm going to be tough on my side, our side for a minute, which is that, you know, when people say that uh, socialism is great, our side, the free market side tends to say, yeah, how's Cuba? How's Venezuela? Mm -hmm. uh, they, don't, they don't work so well. Communist Soviet Union was a nightmare, horrible, horrible nightmare. And the socialist response is, well, that's not what we mean by socialism. That's, mm -hmm. that's the wrong kind. That's the kind that went amok, that went awry. That, that's not what we have in mind. We have a different thing in mind. And then we, we snidely respond sometimes to ourselves or sometimes to the person. Yeah, well, how come there's never that other kind? You know, that's, you know, it's, it's, that's just a, you know, that's utopian. It's unrealistic. But when we have capitalism gone wrong, which is what crony capitalism is, we say, oh, that's, mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. that's not the kind we mm -hmm. meant. We mean the other kind. <laughs> exactly. And so you can argue, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, well, the Pope's biased. He, he saw the wrong kind. But maybe he saw the real kind to some extent. Uh, you know, the growth of, of capitalism does empower businesses to influence the political process for their, for their own sake. And I was, you know, my response to that is, well, that's why we need less power in the political process. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm being as idealistic and unrealistic as my socialist friends. I have to conf confess that possibility. Uh, well, I wouldn't quite make that con confession because there are some pretty strong metrics, right, by which capitalism has delivered the goods. And so we can measure, and of course, income per person is hard to measure and there's, you know, how what the price index is issue and all that kind of stuff. But it's pretty clear. If you look at the countries that have adopted more market-oriented things, they do have higher economic growth rates and higher standards of living. And what is striking, though, is that the Pope just does not seem to see that or acknowledge that. Uh, he, there is a section in the Doesn't encyclical... Doesn't Yeah, <laughs> there's a section in the encyclical that talks about the declining quality of the standard of living. And so, you know, I guess it is in some places, but the overall big picture to me is a rising quality of standard of living by lots of metrics, including really blunt ones like people being able to live longer and not being malnourished and all that kind of thing. And, and but I do think it cycles back to his bigger point, 
And that is that to him, a, a true quality of living is that, well, just like you can be obese from eating too much food, you could be the equivalent of obese from consuming too much of everything. And you just have too much and we consume it often conspicuously. And that, so the market is failing in his point of view by delivering some people just too much, more than they need, more than is for their own good. And economists are incredibly hesitant to ever say that. Very unsympathetic I mean, to How many do you ever find an economist who could say, take your standard introductory or intermediate textbook where they lay out the principles, and I, I say this in my introduction, right? One of our core principles that you'll see in your intermediate micro is more is better. And Francis would say, huh? What are you talking about? No, it isn't. You have too much. It's bad for you. Give it away. Scale back. Do less. Enjoy life more. Work less. Consume less. Yeah, let's talk about that. That was actually I was going to turn to next anyway. Um, <laughs> so I, I do think this is where I thought the Pope is, is on the right track. And, of course, I'm channeling my um, theory of moral sentiment side of Adam Smith mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that we as – he doesn't ex- explicitly, I don't think, condemn economists for their views of, of utility theory. But I will for a minute, which is, yes, we teach that. We teach that that, that more is better, that, that there's no satiation, that people always want more. And we, if, we're, if I were asked to defend that, I'd say, well, that's a good starting place for how people actually behave. That's mm-hmm. what they do. When they give them a chance – they tend not to sit back and say, I've got enough. They, they, want, they want more. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, and we call that, by the way, we call that utility maximization. We, we, we suggest that people try to get the maximum amount of utility, which is a vague, empty word, which we sometimes conflate with happiness or satisfaction. They want to get the maximum utility given the fact that they're constrained by their resources, their income, et cetera. And we have to concede the point, though, that it's not always the case that, mm-hmm. that that's a good thing. And I do think we confuse our students in thinking that because that's the way people actually behave, that therefore it is a good thing. Those two things are not true. Those two mm-hmm. things do not necessarily nope. go together. And yet we often, I think, deliberately or not, confuse our students into thinking that how the world is – is necessarily good, and it's not necessarily true. And we especially do when we kind of, you know, connect a couple more dots and we find that intersection point that's the equilibrium, we say that's the efficient point as well. That's kind of the social optimum. And so, uh, you know, we're so used to critiques of that in a later chapter or whatever where we say, well, if the costs don't really measure the marginal external costs, then yeah, we could have a problem. Benedict pushes that, but he also pushes that you know the marginal benefit is just not equal to the, de- the demand curve. The true benefits you get from consuming things just run out a lot before we act like they do. We just keep buying new stuff and using it up real quick and throwing it out, he would say. And we, you don't need to. Just hold on to the old stuff. Use it longer. You don't need as much stuff because, I guess, to put him into economic ease, the marginal benefits are getting down towards zero a lot sooner than we act like they are. Do you agree with that? 
So I think fundamentally I do. And maybe it's because I'm just that kind of person that doesn't get a lot of extra satisfaction and never really has out of all that extra stuff. But I think there's a deeper moral uh, argument that can be added on to that as well. And so I'll lay my cards on the table, and that is that uh, I'm a convert to Catholicism. Before I was a Catholic, I was an atheist for many years, and so I would not have bought that argument at all. But after converting, I have come to understand that and in many ways embrace that argument as well, that no, we just don't really need all that extra stuff that we continue to just pant after. Well, I, I, you know, I agree with that as well. I think where you and I might differ from others is that I think people should be free to make those choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that yeah. popes and other kinds of uh, economic thinkers are free to discourage people from mm-hmm. pursuing And the to job, me, that seems like mainly what the Pope is doing, right? There's a few times where he talks about laws that need to be done or international actions that need to be made. But it's mainly to solve tragedies of the commons and those kinds of things. It's mainly on the, you know, the point we were talking about before, consuming too much. It's exhortation. He's basically saying what has been said by the church for the last 2,000 years, all the way back to, to Jesus, the founder of the church, that, look, you know, you, you don't need all this stuff. It's pulling you away from the ultimate ends of your life. You're just pursuing it and not what you're meant, what you were created by God to pursue. Now, some what were you created? Yeah, you were created by God to pursue God, not to pursue this mammon stuff. Holiness, righteousness, virtue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, th- some listeners are going to be offended by this. So I just want to, I want to <laughs> challenge, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't like the God talk for one, and they also think, hey, if I want to buy a fancy car or mm-hmm. uh, a second, third, fourth, fifth, eighteenth pair of shoes, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And of course, part of me says that's true. Uh, there is nothing wrong with that. But I do find it interesting. How much time? Because I want to get to this issue, which which he condemns of of excessive consumption or mm-hmm. materialism that's that's sort of built into capitalism. Mm-hmm. This idea that um, I want to I, I encourage readers to think about how much time you spend surfing uh, Amazon or the web more generally, looking for cool stuff to buy. Because I know I do, and I do get kind of a thrill when I find something, and I get a thrill when I order it. And occasionally I get a thrill when I get it, when I receive it, but, but a lot of times uh-huh. it just ends up on the shelf um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and doesn't add that happiness I anticipated. Uh, and it's just uh, sometimes just the shopping and spending, what uh-huh. Wordsworth called getting and spending, we lay waste uh-huh. our powers. That was his indictment of it. Uh, uh-huh. There's something there, and I think uh, it's useful to be uh, to think about it. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I think... One of the Pope's purposes is to get us to think more about that and maybe just move us a little bit in the direction that he's arguing. So, The thing I do want to add, though, to our previous conversation about the environment is that, before we move on, is that it is a document that is, the Pope's encyclical is, if I read it correctly, very short on empirical evidence, and shockingly so in that many of the claims about environmental destruction – uh, poverty and so on. It's not mm-hmm. so much that the document cherry picks data to make the Pope's case. There's very little data in it, and the data that comes to my mind is on the other side. Uh, 
Did you notice that? Was that striking to you? Yeah. And so to me, there was uh, just a, a, a great tension in, in reading the encyclical because, you know, I obviously have a point of view that I've formed over uh, decades now about sort of how well our policies are working, especially for environmental things. I teach an environmental economics class. And so if I had seen some of my students making arguments like that, I would have, you know, on their, their paper, you know, bring me some evidence. Exactly right. And so one piece of evidence that is totally lacking <clears throat> is an, an idea of an environmental Kuznets curve. And so we've clearly seen this with lots of pollutants, Explain. especially in rich countries like the United States, where when you get richer at first, the pollution levels, the emission levels go up. But once you get to a certain point, they plateau, and once you get past that point, they start to go down. So we've clearly seen this, say, for air pollution in the United States. The worst air pollution levels we had in this country's history were many decades ago, back when we had a lot of factories that were spewing out coal soot and lots of cars that were spewing out all this stuff from their tailpipes. And then we got richer. And as we got richer, we said, gosh, we can afford to clean things up. And we forced the coal companies to put scrubbers in. And we moved more and more to clean fuels that we could afford, like natural gas. And our cars, we put catalytic converters on. And, right, and so our environmental quality, especially air pollution, has just gotten better and better. And there's just not an acknowledgement that something like that could happen in the encyclical that I see anywhere. And yeah. it's not just that this is a trivial thing, that this has happened big time in a lot of places. Objectively, environmental standards on many key measures, like what's going into your lungs, are getting better in lots of places. And lots of other things have improved uh, more mm -hmm. forest land, despite the yep. claims to the contrary. Yep. There are places where yep. it's not true, of course. And uh, you know, I think the environmental movement falls back on the um, on both global warming and habitat destruction, which is worrisome. Both of them are, are somewhat concerning because uh, there's some uncertainty about what their effects and costs are, um, that we are potentially losing you know, keystone species as we expand human reach is a concern. I don't think we know very much about it, but I understand the argument on the other side of mine, which is to be concerned about it. I think that's a legitimate argument, but what is striking is what you pointed out, which is on so many dimensions, um, we've cleaned up pollutants, toxins in the air uh, through government, mainly through government regulation, often inefficiently done through scrubbers. It should have mm -hmm. been, I think, a tax. It would have been a lot cheaper, but at least it's made some mm -hmm. progress. And uh, mm -hmm. if you live in Los Angeles, you, you know it's true because you remember what it looked like in the air and what it felt like. And it's different. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And that's a, I, I agree with you. I just surprised it's not acknowledged at all, but yeah. Uh, and then he's got some <clears throat> just, I don't know, deep skepticism you'll see of business and markets. There's a, a section where he basically uh, says, you know, talking about development of poorer countries in the developing world about, you know, the multinationals come in and they leave all these problems behind and the governments and the NGOs with their white hats, they come in and they're just the good guys. And, you know, it's just, if I were to make a public choice critique of the document, uh, it's that, hey, you totally get how markets can fail because you totally understand that man 
is a fallen species, that we are sinful. And so, boy, we're going to export our sins into every nook and cranny of our lives and into the marketplace big time. But then you kind of forget that when you're talking about government coming into the, right? They're fallen too. They're sinners too. They're going to cave into the exact same selfishness and sinfulness there, you know, you see everywhere else in the economy. So how do you think they're going to come in and just fix these problems? Um, and just, I don't know, there's a little bit of a, uh, just an, I'll call it a naive optimism there that I see sometimes. I won't push it too far because there are some cases like, uh, in the document, one of the specifics is he thinks that, uh, we need some kind of global, um, agency or, or global agreement on the oceans. I agree. You know, the tragedy of the commons, boy, has that played out with, in, our, in our oceans. <clears throat> but there's other places, I just don't, don't see this. Um, take another example. He talks about genetically modified crops. And he gives them a little bit of a, you know, positive spin, but it's mainly skepticism when you get to that part. And one of the things that he, he worries about that, is that these genetically modified crops uh, only seem to increase economies of scale. And to an economist, ah, economies of scale, I like that. But to him, no, economies of scale is driving a little guy out of business. And so he's very, very skeptical about that uh, because he does take a, kind of this producerist point of view that um, we don't see so much in economics. In fact, if you think about the way we approach things in economics, we couldn't care less about the producers. It's all about the consumers, and those producers are just a bunch of captive species that we've, right? And, they well, yeah, respond. they earn a lot of money in the process. They respond to and fro to our demands, they, and that's the exactly way a market right. should work. We're just harnessing them yep. to, to the benefit of the, con, of the consumers. But because he has this great sympathy with a lot of especially small-scale producers, mom-and-pop businesses and, you know, peasant agriculture and that kind of stuff, he would not take that approach at all and is very wary of something like these genetically modified uh, crops, not because of the frankenfood, but because it's harming the little peasant agriculture kind of yeah, person. interesting. A point of view that we as economists would just totally miss. Yeah. And we just kind of act like, oh, it's just markets work efficiently. These guys will go into some other yeah. sector. Don't worry about it. And so, no, he says we got to worry about it. So I want to take another uh, claim seriously, which is hard for me, but I, I'm going to try. He really makes the point that uh, excessive consumerism, the point we were talking about earlier the, of more and more, that it's an inherent part of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And you know, my view has always been, um, you know, I always think about this around the holiday season when, when I think of not uh, a very unattractive aspect of our profession is – Economists who get quoted in the newspaper saying it's very important that we have a big holiday season, keep the economy going. And I, my view has always been if maybe some people don't want a big holiday season, they want to give fewer gifts, they don't want to be as material, they want to spend more time in front of the fireplace with their family, and that's okay. We'll have a smaller economy. Mm-hmm. There's nothing mm-hmm. inherently good about a bigger economy mm-hmm. if we don't want it. And it does mm-hmm. raise the question of whether, how hard is it? how difficult it is for us to resist that uh, material mm-hmm. call. And, of course, the Pope's right. Businesses do want to sell stuff, so they're really eager to encourage us to buy more stuff. Is it realistic to think that there could be a small capitalism, a, uh, a community of people who choose 
you know, something akin to the to the Amish. The Amish have chosen a, mm-hmm. a different lifestyle, but it's a very small group. <laughs> Is it imaginable that a large society could say, uh, we've had enough, we're going to spend more time uh, with our families and less time uh, making and getting and spending? Yeah. And so, you know, I think the Pope would say something like, that task is just getting harder and harder and harder, but that doesn't mean we should give up, right? And take an example within the church, and that is the equivalent of the Amish, if you will, is, uh, you know, religious nuns and, and monks and those kinds of things who would do something like that, right? They would kind of, from our point of view, drop out of society, go off by themselves, live this humble life, with a much, much lower level of consumption and maybe do some production for themselves, but spend most of their time actually in the worship of God. And so there used to be a lot more people who were willing to do that. If you just look at the total number of nuns and and that kind of stuff in uh, around the world, and just people have been pulled away from that. And the Pope would say, you know, it's just basically because we're fighting against all this noise in society that's, you know, luring us to worry about the material things and just drowning out the celestial noise, you know? And and so I, I think and he would agree have, with you. You, you don't yeah. have to be a religious person to, to feel this way. You mm-hmm. can be a secular person who wants to drop out, join a commune, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. join a local farm, uh, live on a kibbutz. But as you point out, I, these... Answers while they had a little bit of a heyday in the '60s and '70s have simply become less attractive to most people for whatever reason. Yeah, and so I think that the Pope is just <clears throat> trying to pull us back in that direction with this exhortation. But also, um, what I did in writing my introduction to the symposium is I went back and tried to read the most authentic Pope that I could, and that is. Uh, the most authentic you're going to get is when he's there talking at his daily mass, giving his homily that he does to the people who come, just kind of his briefly prepared off-the-cuff marks. And, and I went back and I read them, and, and they just, it, it pervades all of them that what we all need to do is just lead these more simple and humble lives, and that's our true key to eternal happiness. And you can say that over and over and over and over again. He will say it over and over, and the church has said that over and over again, right? Well, every religion, I think, emphasizes the dead end that uh, material prosperity by itself. Uh, there's different views of, of a, say, ascetic mm-hmm. uh, practice, mm-hmm. but uh, Judaism, for example, does not really embrace asceticism. Uh, it, it's a different. It's mm-hmm. talks about elevating and making holy the material, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Every religion warns against um, excessive pursuit of money, and and certainly see as certainly in the Judeo Christian tradition, uh, money is is seen as potentially idolatrous, and I I think we can all understand that. Whether again, whether you're religious or not, there's a seductive mm-hmm. aspect of monetary success, and phrases like. Um, no one on their deathbed wish they spent more time at the yeah. office. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, not a religion. Yeah. That's not that's not in the Bible. That that's just sort of human folklore that I think we all understand. Uh, I was actually uh, talking to someone yesterday about 
uh, he was quoting David Brooks. I don't know if this is accurate, but the David Brooks makes a distinction, and maybe this is not David Brooks's idea either, but a distinction between your resume and your eulogy. Your resume is your career accomplishments, the, the things that you've done in the material world, but your eulogy is what kind of a human being you were, what kind of mm-hmm. husband, father, son, uh, friend, and uh, colleague. And those things um, are easy to forget, and we tend to focus on the resume. I think that's a common human challenge, again, whether you're a religious person or not. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting, the comment you made about uh, on your deathbed, spending time at the office versus whatever. And because uh, maybe a surprise one would get from reading uh, the Pope is that his point of view toward work is different than economists have on work. So, you know, if you've ever taken a labor econ class, you draw the indifference curves about, uh, you know, leisure that you're giving up to get these other goods, and this leisure is the really good thing, and work is a bad. I've heard many economists say yep, work is a bad, including as an editor too. for the Independent yep. Review. You know, these arguments forget the fact that work is bad. Okay, but the Pope would say, no, it's not. Work is so fundamental to your life. It's not a bad. It's you being able to be creative and being productive and giving to the rest of society. Work is a good thing. Excessive work, work until you're ready to drop dead, is not good, obviously. But work is good. And so one thing that he asks, that he challenges uh, employers to do is to put people to work. Do some projects that will get more and more people getting to work. Work is a very good thing. Yeah, I, this is not quite on that point, but I do want <laughs> to quote the Pope because uh, there was a piece here, a sentence I loved uh, from the encyclical, which uh, he says, rather than a problem to be solved, the world mm. is a joyful mystery to be contemplated with gladness and praise. And um, I feel that very strongly. It, it's, it, it plays to my uh, bias against the economist as engineer, where everything mm. is going to mm-hmm. be, uh, we just have to steer things the right way and push the right levers. And I love the mystery of that. And uh, mm-hmm. I think gratitude, which is why I see the gladness part and the praise part, Again, if you're not a religious person, the pray you're not going to praise God. But uh, the idea of being appreciative of the the glory of being alive seems to me to be a really important part of the human experience and can easily be mm-hmm. forgotten. So I, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you know how something like this encyclical was created? Um, does the Pope pen this document in his own hand? Does he collaborate? Does he meet with that committee or two that you talked about? It's because it's obviously a very broad, wide-ranging document, mm-hmm. um, and he says busy. Uh, do you know anything about the construction of these these statements? So I'll tell you what I have heard secondhand, right? And so one of the authors in our symposium uh, knows a, I guess, Vatican insider type person who kind of explains to him uh, that. These things are drawn up by these very large committees, and then they write multiple drafts, and the Pope will then read through the drafts, and the one that he thinks is kind of the right one is the one that he'll pick. And in fact, much of this particular encyclical was drafted before he became Pope, and therefore has a good Benedict imprint on it as his well. His predecessor. And so I, I, yeah, his, his predecessor. And so I, I was a little... I was a little surprised by uh, 
his explanation of that. And so assuming that it's right, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he was handed three or four versions to read and then said, well, this one kind of encapsulates most what I want. It reminds me of a speech writing team for the for a president, typically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a lot of jockeying within the speech writing group about mm-hmm. whose phrases are going to count more or less. Obviously, they, if they want their speeches to be read, they have to write something they think the president would be mm-hmm. willing to say yeah. or happy yeah. to say. So, so that's especially going to be true for somebody like this particular pope, who's not an intellectual like his pre- two immediate predecessors were, right? And he's much more of a, you know, more of a pastoral pope. Uh, and so is not used to writing long documents and, and all that kind of stuff like um, both John Paul and Benedict would have been. Has anything come of this document other than it generating a response from the independent review and, and Robert Waples? Um, <laughs> and, and so it, did I it think... land with a thud? Did it land with a splash? Does it have any significance other than it's fun to talk about? I mean, I'm enjoying our conversation, but is there any significance to it? And so uh, I think that it attracted a lot more attention than most papal encyclicals do. The media talked about it a lot when it came out, and environmentalists did, economists a little bit. Uh, within the church, uh, I have seen at a number of, of parishes around where uh, they've held like little education seminar things, meet for an evening and talk about what's in the, in the encyclical and kind of what it means for your day-to-day life. So um, I think it's kind of filtered out in that direction, and the big, broad message that the environment's in trouble, and we need to do something about it, but at the same time, we're all in trouble, and the poor of the world are in trouble, and we need to do something about that at the same time, and they're all linked together, is the main message that he pushed. And like almost all of religion, the impact is one soul at a time. And I think that's the way he would view it. You mentioned the poor. We haven't talked much about that other than the encouragement to business to be better employers or to be mm-hmm. to employ more people. Uh, obviously, you and I can be as happy as, as we might be about the improvements in world standard of living and, and, and that it's fairly – while there is inequality that many, many millions – hundreds of millions of people have left poverty in the last century, mm-hmm. in the last 20 mm-hmm. years. It's been, I think, an incredible success story. Uh, you can debate about what aspects of capitalism are responsible for it and how much government was necessary. That's all fine. Put that to the side. But it does remain the case that there are lots of people in the world alive today who have miserable lives. Um, mm-hmm. It may not be the bottom billion anymore. Maybe only the bottom... 800 million, um, it's still a horrible situation in many parts mm-hmm. of the world. What's the Pope's view of that, and what does he uh, encourage to help fight that? And so that's a hard question to answer. And so we know that the economist answer is just kind of bring free markets to more and more people and places. But the Pope doesn't see the free markets as really helping, especially at the bottom very much, because – those people don't have very much money to spend, right? And so his take is much more one that's kind of a, a broad, holistic take that the church has given, and that the most important thing is this. Absolute poverty is very bad for people for obvious reasons. They're malnourished, they're sick, their stomachs are hungry. But it's also even worse 
for other reasons. And that is those people struggling in those positions, and this would be people struggling in relative poverty as well, are often just marginalized by everybody else. They're kind of treated as though they're just not important and they're no good because they're not productive. And the fact that they weren't productive is why they're poor, right? And so they're just marginalized by the entire system. And so the solution to that, I think he's ultimately arguing, is, well, yes, some state, some redistribution, and the church has, has pushed those kinds of things for a long time. But more importantly, more individually, you, me, each one of us, need to just start changing our attitudes toward poor people, acting like they really matter, acting like they're our friends and like they're our brothers and our neighbors. And once we do that, you know, that's the beginning of the solution. Yeah, I wish you'd spoken more about what I would call civil society, the ways that mm-hmm. people voluntarily help people less fortunate mm-hmm. than themselves. But I do think there is a, going back to the very first point I made about attitude and behavior, it's certainly the case that it's very hard to treat our neighbor as herself. And um, homeless beggars are no fun to look at for most of us. We mm-hmm. struggle to mm-hmm. treat them as human beings uh, when we go past them. Uh, I try to respond to them, even if I don't give them money. I try to give. I usually try to give them something, um, contrary to what a lot of people think is a good idea. But I try to mm-hmm. give them something. Uh, and when I do, I try I to now, do. It. I now do what I've been taught to do in church, and that is, uh, basically, we're going to make an exchange with each other that's going to benefit both of us. And so I say to somebody who's asked for money, who's obviously in need. Um, you know, I hand them a, 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 you know, a $10 bill or whatever, and I say, what's your name? Because I want to pray for you. And my name is Robert, and can you pray for me? And the church's teaching, traditional teaching, is that that's an exchange where he is benefiting himself and me by praying for me, and I'm benefiting myself and him by praying for him and also contributing to him. It's interesting. I, I would... I, I do try to interact in a human way with the people I give money mm-hmm. to. Um, I'm not comfortable asking to be prayed for or to pray for them. Partly mm-hmm. is it's I view that as I'm more what's the right word? Uh, I view that as a personal choice, and I'm curious what kind of response you get when you do that. And by the way, if you really give a ten dollar bill, I'm really impressed because I give a dollar. Uh. And sometimes I only well, give a quarter. And sometimes I only well, give a quarter. You know, Tell how many beggars there are on my walk, you know, uh-huh. the stretch I'm covering. But uh, I do not live in a very urban area, so that I don't come across yeah. uh, people panhandling that often. And so, yeah, I think I used the $10 example because that last time I was actually, it was a person at an intersection and we drove by him. My wife said, you better make a U-turn. <laughs> so I made a U-turn and went back and, and gave him a $10 bill. And so the reaction is usually um, one of, oh, thank you. And like, nobody asked me that before. And yeah, of course I'll pray for you. Hmm. So I hope so. I, yeah, I, was in, I was in England uh, about a month ago. And it, I, this is just a random observation, but I was struck by how polite the beggars are in England. Um, they, they were uh, extremely civil if you turned them down or if you gave them less than you might have given them or that, that they might have liked. Um, and uh, it was a strike, a contrast to the United States. I, mm-hmm. I don't know what the reason 
if for that is, and I don't even know if it's generally true, but um, well, it seems people are very polite here in the South as well. That's been my observation. Yeah, well, it could be. It's just a cultural mm-hmm. uh, general general generalization. I think people in England are more polite, so maybe it's not surprising that the homeless or the beggars are more polite. Um, maybe that's what you'd expect. Uh, so, ask you, I'm going to ask you a strange question. Uh, we talked at the beginning of this conversation. If you know you'd heard from the Pope, you pointed out the Pope wants to dialogue, and so you're dialoguing away. And uh, you haven't heard back yet, but maybe maybe you will. Uh, if you did hear from the Pope and you got an audience and you had uh, 15 minutes, which would be a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what Gary Becker used to give me. If I, if I told okay. – here's my advisor. <laughs> if, if I told him I needed – if I went to a secretary and I said I'd like to meet to discuss my thesis, I, I got 15 minutes. I didn't get a half an hour. I didn't get an hour. And I didn't get an open-ended appointment. It was 15 minutes. And we sometimes were done before the 15 minutes was up. There's not a lot of chit-chat. Now, it might be different mm-hmm. with the Pope. Uh, maybe you'd get a half an hour. But let's suppose you had 15 minutes and uh, you get to make your case. You've got 15 minutes to to give your perspective on the encyclical. And um, what, what's, your, what's your pitch? <clears throat> and... I guess I'd, I'd, I would not take all 15 minutes. I, I would give a pretty simple pitch, I think, where I would say that while the encyclical says a lot of really important things that need to be said, we can do, I think, a little bit even more with it. And that is that a couple of missed opportunities, right? There are some solutions to these problems that will solve them in ways you'd like them to and not like, you know, mechanical solution where we're just here as engineers to tweak whatever lever. No, but real solutions that will make people's lives better and will also make their lives more virtuous and more holy that just didn't come out in the encyclical and I think that you should pay more attention to. And the primary ones would be things like Solving environmental problems with some of the techniques that economists have talked about, especially with securing property rights, because that seems to be one of the main problems, you know, where look at the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. I'm sure you've seen the picture. Trees on one side and mud on the other side, because property rights are enforced on one side and they're not on the other. You know, arguments like that, that we can be harnessing some additional uh, ways to get people to act virtuous together that will help solve some of these problems, okay? Uh, and, and some, you know, one of the uh, articles in the symposium pushes that point pretty hard and brings in a lot of stuff uh, researched by Eleanor Ostrom and that whole school of thought along those lines. So that's what I would mainly expound on, I think. So if I, if I had my chance, mm-hmm. and I, so to broaden this beyond the Pope, um, when I think about people who are hostile to capitalism per se, uh, I would argue that capitalism is not the problem. It's us. Capitalism mm-hmm. is what's really good at is giving us what we want more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it I breaks think, down. I think you would agree completely. <laughs> uh, sometimes there's, there's flaws in how the system works because of issues of externalities, of course, 
But what capitalism really does is give us what we want. And if you want to mm-hmm. make capitalism better, you got to change what we want. Yeah. So you think, uh, say, modern television is a cesspool? Uh, and that's because there's more choices now, and we get more of what we want. It used to be there were three choices, and it wasn't very competitive, and it wasn't very good, and people you know, got what they – got a pretty mm-hmm. mediocre product. Now they get a fabulous product, and it's easy to stand on the outside and go, yeah, it's fabulous. People really like it, but it's kind of gross, or it's whatever mm-hmm. it is, whatever aspect you don't like about modern TV. Like, I actually think the quality is unparalleled. Uh, in terms of the artistry of it, even. Um, and so, if you want to change capitalism, you got to change us. And mm-hmm. that's, I really see that as, I like the Pope doing that. I'm, I'm all for I that. I think he would grasp you by the hand and say, <laughs> My son, you have exactly what I've been saying. We need to change us. <laughs> yeah. The problem is the document's got too much um, other stuff there. It doesn't, it comes uh-huh. through, it doesn't come through as a document like that. Maybe uh-huh. that's a communication problem. Maybe it's my my biases and, and uh-huh. take on it. But it comes across as an institutional indictment and much less an indictment of human frailty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, I just I, – I can't say it enough. I want the Pope and the other preachers of the world to be the ones who influence humanity and not the governments with the guns. And if mm-hmm. people don't want mm-hmm. to listen to the Pope, well, that's our choice too. I just don't want somebody to be able to impose that choice on us mm-hmm. about our economic mm-hmm. system. So, yeah. My guest today sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I, my guest today has been Robert Waples. Uh, the essay is "The Economics of Pope Francis." Robert, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>